0: A lot of people have asked me why haven't I had somebody on the podcast yet that's ex UK military so today we have got a Royal Marine commando and we'll get to that in a second Chris Thrall is the author of two books and he's got another one coming out about the thousand mile run he did raising awareness about veteran suicide I have started to read his books on my Kindle Eating smoke is the one I'm reading right now and the description Box below this video if you click on that there will be a link to Chris's books worldwide Chris also has his own YouTube channel and I urge you to click over and subscribe if you've liked this podcast today so Chris Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. What is a Royal Marine Commando, and how did you get
1: into that? So a Royal Marine is, in essence, the Navy's sea soldiers. Going back in history, when um, the fleet went out to, you know, maybe pillage the Spanish, they, they needed soldiers on board the ships who could cross the decks with their, you know, their muskets and uh, and protect the you know the protect the sailors so that's that's the history behind so it. do you know when they were founded? Sixteen sixty four. Sixteen sixty four so if, it's Sean if I didn't know that I, <laughs> I'd be hung drawn and quartered by by my uh, <laughs> my
0: colleagues. I watched that movie was it Queen Elizabeth or the Spanish surrounded the UK? Was that were you guys in existence
1: then, or was that before I, that? I haven't seen that. Okay. film. But I, when was she in range? She was Queen Elizabeth. Do we know Queen Elizabeth the Because the Spanish came
0: over, and then the bad weather and stuff, and they they ended up like losing a lot of their fleet, and kind of
1: like <laughs> well, laughs, they were the big empire. And I collapsed. come from Plymouth, where Sir Francis Drake famously <laughs> insisted on finishing his game of bowls before he <laughs> went out to frazzle the Spanish Armada. Yeah. Um, So at a marina, we we undergo the toughest military basic training in the world. We enter what's called the commando phase after 18 weeks of initial infantry training. And amongst other things, such as learning how to land on shore, so from from boats, we uh, undergo four commando tests. And they are a bit hard. When when you're 19, you know, they're um, harder than running a thousand miles nonstop, which I, as you said, I I did last year.
0: And we're going to get to Chris's story of how he ends up in Hong Kong and he clicks up as a bouncer with the Triad Mafia. We're talking the 14K Triad Mafia out of Hong Kong. We're going to get to all that. Now, you just said that some of the hardest training in the world. You're 19 years old. What exactly are you doing in this training program? What, is, what are they telling you to do?
1: Well, I was 18 when I 18. Yeah, I joined up for a bet. A bet? Yeah. I was homeless, uh, living in my car. A <sighs> friend of mine had passed the very intense three-day potential recruits course you go on to get into the Marines. So to give you an idea, for every sort of thousand people that are going in the recruiting office the people that fall by the wayside by the time you get your green beret the sign of the commando you're probably saying there's maybe 30 people out of that thousand wow it's it's um and so my friend came around he'd passed this really tough intense three-day introduction course and if you don't pass that you don't even get into training in the Marines and he he looked at me and said well of course Chris you couldn't do it and well, I, you know, you can imagine I'm sleeping in my car, so I haven't had the easiest of childhoods, um, homeless for the first time at 15 and then again at 17. And you don't tell me what I can and can't do, right? You know, I'm not a nasty person, but I, so I've got this this pride. And so uh, I said, oh, yes, I can. And I, I went down to the recruiting office and uh, the guy, the, this big burly Marine said, right, hop up on that bar, pull ups okay so I knocked off something it was 19 or 20 I, th- I think I, I think I was doing about 29 pull ups at, at that stage I'm, I'm sure I'm not I'm not a macho guy I, I some things I'm good at the running believe it or not I, I was awful at uh, and I still am but you don't need to be good at running to run a thousand miles so you know pull ups is a huge exercise
0: right. they do in the prison they wrap like socks and cloths around the metal grid stairs, and there and all this. I've read about this <laughs> and this amazing
1: book that you've written I really thoroughly Thanks. enjoyed this one thoroughly enjoyed it. I
0: could it. barely do any in the beginning but with the assist I started to get up there and I felt the development in the lats. Back at the gym now I need that assist man.
1: Oh <laughs> tell me about it you know so I did 29 then right? Now, no, now, without now, any assist Now, um, this is no joke I'm, I'm, I it wasn't that long ago I, I couldn't I couldn't do two, Sean. Yeah, I I'm the don't same. I don't know what I, I couldn't do. <laughs> anyway, I digress, but so I'm up on this pull-up bar. I do 20 and I says, okay, get down. I think oh, failed. You know, should have done maybe 40. What would what would everyone else have done? And uh, of course I hadn't failed. He was just like gobsmacked. smacked it was like, right, stop now, stop. That's enough. That's that's And then I later learned that most guys do, you know, 3 or 6 sort of things. So Wow. So yeah, that was me. I was, uh, I went off to Limps and I did this three-day um, commander, um, in, in, it's called the Potential Recruits course. And I was so, my, my only motivation was I wasn't going to fail and let, like, um, my parents and all my various arrangement of step-parents that I've had over the years, like, see me fail because they told me I was a failure, right? And... I was running along on endurance course, which is a two and a half mile course interspersed with underwater tunnels that are no bigger than, um, you know, sort of this big. It's this corrugated iron. It's all caving in. So the tunnels are caving in. Rivers run through the tunnels. So at some points you've got that much air that you've got to push your way through. It, it's slightly changed now. <laughs> that's an, that's a health and safety issue, I, I, I guess. But back in the day, it was there's snakes in there. That's full of an, animal dung. Uh, see, I didn't swear. I said dung. <laughs> right. um, and uh, yo, know, we came off that course after two and a half miles, and I had never experienced exhaustion like it. And I was running along, and I am not going to let. My parents see me fail and I was just hanging in there. All So all for the wrong reasons. The sergeant dropped back and I thought, oh, this is it. He's going to say, right, throw on the wagon, you know, you're not cut out. And he dropped back and, he, and this is the thing about the Royal Marines. He said, well done, mate. You know, you could have given up, but you didn't. And that's exactly what we're we're looking for in the Royal Marines. So, <laughs> so yeah. Okay.
0: So you said, you know, you didn't want to let your parents down. Before that, you said you were homeless and then you mentioned your step-parents, what actually happened that you ended up homeless?
1: Um, I don't really go too much into it all, Sean, for, for the simple reason, you know, I'm not trying to be evasive, it's just I believe in forgiveness. Um, if we haven't got forgiveness in society, you know, if I if I hurt you and then I go away, I think about it and I come out and say, Sean, look, I'm really sorry. That's all I can do, right? And I make amends. You know, you you need to accept that apology, and then you can't then herald it for the rest of your life. Well, this guy did this to me. It's like no, mm-hmm. it's like he had the courage to come and say sorry, and it that's it. So I don't I don't need to go into you know the the kind of nitty gritty of it all. But it was you know I, I was a child of the seventies. Yeah. If people in this um, modern era could knew what you were allowed to do to a child back then and get away with it mm. they would they would think you would weren't telling the truth oh my goodness i mean it, and i mean just one incident in school and you've got to imagine i've come from a damaged home so my my parents they're, they're lovely people but they they didn't quite get it on which is fine you know this this is your natural parents yeah. so when i was very young i only knew kind of like turmoil right and and so I'm in school. You know, one minute I'd be in school, the next minute it would be, Chris, your mum's at the gate, and we'd be, chucked in a car, driven 300 miles up to Lincolnshire, where our grandmother lived, put in a new school. And and of course, you're five or six years old, Sean. Mm-hmm. You 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 can't make sense that. The first time that happened to me, I burst into tears, and my mum's like, Chris, what's wrong? As though, you know, like I shouldn't be up. I said, Can I take my fishing rod with me? You know that was like the most in, that and my tortoise were the two things that that was my security blanket. You know my yeah. tortoise that I love dearly, and uh, she let me down. She stopped working one day. She <laughs> just she stopped on the she stopped halfway across the lawn, did Liz? But um, yeah. So you know, I was at, I I'm a little boy, Sean. You know, and 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 maybe we'll come on to what why eventually. After completely losing my mind through um, to addiction, that I had to start looking after that little boy. If this might make sense to some listeners, um, but uh, yeah, so 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 things were up and down. You know, I went to, you know, including my my kindergarten or, or nursery, as we called it back. I think I went to five schools before I was ten years old. Um and that's five sets of new relationships you've got to break and then make that's five lots of bullying you've got to you know you've been in prison you you got to stand up for yourself or you're going to become a um you know you're going to become a target right and that was that was the case with me I was very defensive of myself I I would you know you you wouldn't bully no one's going to bully me right not you don't know what i what I've got to go through outside of this, this, you yeah. know, this school malarkey, and and that was my saving grace. I was, I was so angry. Don't you dare bully me! That and the fact they did judo when I was at comprehensive for for one year. So yes, and um, so you had this hectic childhood. And before we came in, you were telling me the tragedy that your parents died. Were you young when they died, or was that later on? Uh, my mother died of asbestos poisoning when I was. At some time in my late thirties okay. stepdad i had a, a a very dear stepdad uh dave very nice man I was proud to call him dad you know even though he was i think he was like five years older than me or six years older than me he was a wonderful man he died of um Hodgkin's lymphoma mm-hmm. and that just ate him down to the bone he he went from being six foot he was you Proverbial six foot six giant, gentle giant, and it just ate him away. Yeah. Um, so,
0: so getting in the Royal Marines, then, do you feel like some people, like you know, we're not going to give you a prison sentence if you go in the army; that'll straighten you out. Did you feel that it helped you psychologically? It straightened you out, as they say, from this turmoil you have from your younger years.
1: I, I really think in this current climate of veteran suicide, which is an, it's an epi- it's epidemic proportions now. For people who don't know, and for the people now that want to send our young men and women off to Iran of all places, mm-hmm. you know what you need. If you're going to do that, you have to take responsibility that when these boys and girls come back more of them are gonna commit suicide because of the atrociousness, not just of what they experience over there, but combined with a childhood like mine. You Can can you see how the jigsaw starts? Chuck some alcohol in there, which is the, that's, that's alcohol is water in the arm, British armed forces. It's the, as a substance misuse specialist, which I'm qualified to be, I, I did that job for, for several years we we have a very distorted view of substances in this country namely that the worst two alcohol cigarettes way worse than crack heroin all the others you're going to kick those habits you know you 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 have a bit of life experience while while you do it the alcohol it's the worst one it's so socially acceptable it's so easy to do every day and function in society and it's so Hard to kick,
0: right? I had a cellmate who was an alcoholic. And um, when he first came in, I thought he was like this shriveled up old. Uh, he must have been heroin or something hardcore. And he said he was only like
1: about 40 and he looked about 70 and he was just, he was just gone. Yeah, um, I should say, Um, you asked me about death. Uh, My, you know, my, one of my best friends died when we took acid, drowned, drowned in a lake. Yeah. Which that was... Uh, That was interesting. Before we get to
0: that story, I've been watching your videos on your YouTube channel and anyone interested in his stories on his channel, the link is in the description box below this video. Please subscribe over to his channel. There was a story somewhat uh, funny, the way you told it, if 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 you could tell it today, whereby you're in the Royal Marines and you go to Turkey with one of your buddies and the Turkish mafia... Pull this trick on you whereby you end up in this like yeah. dungeon cell underground, basically. They, they, <laughs> they,
1: they, they kidnapped us, basically. Do yeah. you want to just. Uh, yeah, I, just wanted, that I one. just wanted to say, Sean, that I had another brother, best friend, mm. um, Simon dear, dear Man. He features very much in my second memoir, yeah. 40 Nights, which is that's all about my what people call recovery, mm-hmm. but I just call it the journey, right? Yeah. But Simon, bless him, he drank himself to death. Oh, dear. He's he was my buddy. We first started going out on the rave scene together. He was yeah. a big, strong, giant of a guy, and you know that alcohol—it's very evil stuff. Yeah, I'm not saying you know, I'm not talking prohibition or anything like that here. Mm-hmm. I'm d- I'm just saying we have such a big problem with it in this country now, and it's about time we started addressing it um, yeah. for what it is, which is a toxic poison that dis- mm-hmm. that can. Destroy lives and is destroying a, a a lot of lives. So the the Turkish mafia, yeah. Sorry, yes, yes. Okay, so I served during my first posting. In the Royal Marines was the Northern Ireland conflict. So went to the original war on terror, you could say, or one one, one of the original ones. We were there for the twentieth anniversary of troops in Northern Ireland. And the IRA were just going to do all it could to kill a Marine, which they succeeded in doing in our second week there. Second week there. Um, To to give you an idea, we had 171 serious incidents in just one day alone. So that's bombings, shootings, stabbings, executions, uh, kidnappings, house takeovers, RUC police stations being attacked, mortar bombings, I think I said that one. Um, it just, you know, it went um, it went on and on. And uh, I was on patrol one day with my team and an IRA sniper shot the guy behind me three times, then turned his sights on me. And I remember watching the ground just ping up around my feet. It was, it was, it's just one of those moments where this almost a fantasy situation just is actually coming real to you. Probably when you found yourself in prison you felt like that, right? When you see certain things. You're yeah. like, oh my god this is, This is you know, real, it's not a movie. Is, yeah. Did, you, so, did um, you see the guy get hit behind you? Uh, he, he's what we call tail end Charlie so he's facing backwards most of the time covering what we call our arc so he's covering the rear. Hence the expression, got my six right, six o'clock. Um, this, the IRA had taken over a, a house in the Ardoyne area of Belfast, which is notorious for, for, for trouble back then. And they're taking the occupants hostage, the sniper using of all weapons a Kalashnikov, which is not a sniper's weapon, which which is why my friend lived to tell the tale. Um, for the technical people listening at Kalashnikov, it fires a short round, so it doesn't carry the, the impact that a proper 7.62 snipers rifle would. And he'd aimed at my friend, my OPPO as we call them in the Marines. One round had gone through the sling on his rifle. The second round had taken the antenna off his electrical equipment. The third round had slammed into his um, flak jacket. Hadn't even hit the bulletproof plate that you have over your heart. It had just hit the wadding. It's like a fiberglass wadding. And, of course, it had spun my friend around. All his equipment had flown off. We just heard all these rounds going down, which is, it's, I I wouldn't say it's deafening, but it's, you know, you're being shot at. It's unmistakable, right? Ba-bang, bang, 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 bang bang bang, 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 bang. And I'm watching these greeny brown geezers kick up around my feet. Our commander shouts, take cover, take. I'm not going to swear on YouTube because I know how YouTube... <laughs> five work, minutes works. is over now. Is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So he's yeah. like, take fucking cover. And we just, all, you all cock your weapons, safety catches off and we just ran and dive behind this small outhouse in in this park. When I look back, my colleague is spark out on the grass. My very first thought is, has he just hit the deck? Is that some sort of clever way of taking cover? And the thought that just immediately follows no no he's been hit his equipment is it's like everywhere so I started running back out to grab him I had the first aid kit in my um in one of my webbing pouches and my team is like Chris get the fuck down get the fuck down And I'm like well how can I how can I do you know I can't do that and as I'm running to get him I'd taken no more than sort of five steps and he looked up and in that instant, you could see the shock on his face and he just lunged for his equipment. He grabbed his rifle, his electronic, and he just came running over. I'm hit. I'm hit. I'm hit. So I got him down, ripped open his flat jacket. I'm like, Jock, you're not fucking hit. He Uh, said, uh, uh, I am. I'm hit. I'm hit. I'm hit. I'm Jock, you're not fucking hit, mate. I can't find any holes like that. And he said, I am. I am. By which time our commander, we call it the brick commander, because your four-man teams called it called a brick, he's on the radio to to the headquarters, going, you know, November five zero Bravo, um, contact, casualty, wait out. Then he's like, Ah, November five zero Bravo, contact, no casualty, wait out. Finally, you've got Jock. They're going. I'm hit. I'm hit. I'm hit. Like uh, five zero, Bravo, Contact casualty. Wait. <laughs> the CO gets on the wire and is like, Corporal. I can't remember the pseudonym I, I, I used in the book, but, but you know, Corporal Smith. God's sake, man. Have you got a casualty or not? <laughs> you know. And he's like, I just, I'm, I don't think so. Sir. So it wasn't until we got back that we worked out he had the hole through the weapon sling. The the antenna had been shot off his equipment and this round had hit him in the chest, hence spinning him around and being the short round, it didn't carry the weight to go through the jacket. So, so that was, that was that I got sniped at as I stepped into the gateway of a field out in the countryside, this bullet just winged past my nose. Um, uh, that was, yeah, that, um, and me and this same Marine that I'm just telling you about, we legged it up this field and, um, it's funny how you can be utterly exhausted while you're in the middle of a, of a contact. It it's, I remember thinking, my God, I'm ball bagged. I want to sit down, but no. And as we, we burst out onto this uh, country lane in the dark, there was a car parked sort of 200 meters down on the left. It's light, His engine was just purring away and it, its lights were on. And I, and I was all for just, let's hit it. Let's just run straight down the road and hit it. Jock had been over the water once, maybe even twice before, and he's like, whoa, hang on, this could be a come on. That's where the IRA would fill a car with explosives, um, make it look, let's say, appetizing to the security forces, as it did in this case. You know, I'm, I'm thinking the sniper's in that car. And of course, when you get near it, it explodes. And as we were having this conversation, I uh, the car drove off. So we, we <laughs> that that took that. You know, possibility out of the equation. Uh. So that was that. I then did Arctic warfare um, training and survival training up in the Norwegian Arctic, which was insane. I mean, cross-country skis are fiddly things at the best of time. They're not like the, the downhill that you wear in France or Switzerland, right? They're, they're these things they just uh, fix to the ski at the toe like this. Um, and I was actually quite good at the skiing part. But when they put my Bergen on, you got a Bergen that's weighing, you know, the 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 equivalent of maybe two or three television sets. It's 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 just, I I honestly thought it was a joke. I thought the guys because it was my first. We call it first winter that they were having a laugh with me. That they they, they gone give the new guy you know all this equipment. It just so you know, Bergen is a backpack, is it? Your Bergen, stuff, yeah. Yep. Okay, your Bergen. Unless you speak Norwegian, and then Bergen means mountain but okay. it's, it's, just a, it's that green brand of rucksack you see the, the, the commanders wearing so the first time I put it on I'm like how the hell this is a joke, this seriously is a joke it's crazy to think within 3 months you're skiing up to 30 miles a day carrying that and you don't even think about it you know? um, so that was Norway that was a, a brilliant experience and then I was part of a high security de- detachment just 12 12 of us Marines on board an aircraft carrier which was quite a quite a unique position to be in. quite privileged we were our job was to protect some of the um, let's just say sophisticated weapon systems um, and we got to sail to some quite amazing places and it was one of the best years I think of my life <laughs> to be on a ship when, when you've got all the air crew on board, you, you're talking about 1,200 people. We were the first ship to have wrens aboard, so the first ship to, in the British Navy to have females. So that added, a you know, suddenly these Matlows that would have been stinking and, you know, stinking a BO, sleeping in the same bed for, same bedding for weeks on end were coming down to breakfast with aftershave <laughs> on and, you know, ironing their shirts and stuff. It was quite, it was, mm. it was, it was, yeah, it was quite, we sailed to Barbados, Sean, can you imagine it? The atmosphere on board, I took up the job as ship's DJ and I was, I had this kind of Adrian Cronauer, hour kind of gig going on where I just, I'd make up these characters in my head and just put them down the microphone as this conversation going on, we had Dockyard Copper and. Anyone who's met an, an M W D policeman will know that they're more jobs worth than some of the the the, <laughs> the, 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 the real old Bill. That was that, that was amazing. That's where I think I started to wise up to the dangers you can meet abroad. Um, a friend of mine was on the beach with her boyfriend. She was in my first aid party when we were when we were at sea. If we came under attack, they call it action stations. Because we obviously don't have to protect stuff at sea. Well, I mean, technically you could get attacked by a, another ship, or another speedboat or something. But we, instead of our job protecting these weapons systems, we would form the first aid party. And one of the girls in my first aid party... Uh, was walking along she'd gone for a meal with her boyfriend who was on the ship they'd gone for a romantic walk along the beach anyone listening you never ever do that in a country where it's extreme poverty you it's the beach in in a lot of places is is just the hive of trouble right or the the trouble gravitates to it some guy came out of the bushes with a machete right give us all your stuff watches you know money and they're like okay dude just just take it it's it's you know he said right now i want your woman and the 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 stoker was like no dude no and she was just no 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 just just let him do it let him let him let him do it you know to to, she basically saved probably saved both their lives so and she got raped did she and she had she got raped she then got humiliated i won't make too much of this because it's kind of an aside but She then got humiliated for leaving, for not being able to handle it on ship, right? Which is just one of those, you know, the human animal is a very strange beast at times, right? So that was that. Now, we stopped in Istanbul.
0: Oh, before this one then, when you're in a firefight... Is the adrenaline always the same? It just goes off the scale and time stands still? Or do you get used to it as you get in more
1: firefights? Well, I can't speak like possibly some of these guys coming back from the Middle East who've really been in long, protracted, drawn-out firefights, some of which have gone on for days on end, right? I've only got what we experienced in training, which seems very real at the time as far as... Um, marching towards an enemy, you know, in in the moonlight, you're marching towards an enemy, like exactly the way they did in the Falklands. You're waiting. You you march, Sean, until someone gets shot. Effective enemy fires when you start taking casualties. It's not when you hear the rifle fire and you're right, I want to get down now. It's like, no, you keep marching until someone gets shot. Or as I think the Paris found out when they were taking, was it Mount Longdon? So someone stepped on a landmine and that, Kind of gave the game away, right? So I've only got the the, the training scenario. But what about when you get sniped? So does, yeah, does that ha- that feeling happen then? That I mean, that it was quite funny, really. I thought I knew where we, we call it the shooting point, right? I I predict it was the back of the Ardoin. and I kind of knew, but. You can't really just start putting rounds down in a civilian area, right? Because especially if you you can't see the sniper, I mean, it's just it's going to be insanity. It has happened over over there. But um, Jock came running up, and in his shock state, he's like, "The firing points up there," and it was completely the opposite direction. The area we ended up cordoning off for the for the police search and everything was it was it was about a quarter of a mile away from where this guy was. Right? But. Um, <sighs> Adrenaline can can cause a mild sort of confusion. Yeah, I think everyone would love to think that they're going to be, you know, John Wayne on the trigger and da-da-da-da-da. And, and yeah, it can. I mean, I've seen people just go to pieces over a negligent discharge. When you're on patrol, as happens That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Way more times than it should. We, you, someone would have a negligent discharge, so they'd fire the weapon off accidentally. Um, goes without saying people have been killed, you know, in, in, in the past with that, that situation. And I remember, um, I think it was my friend, dave who he ended up committing suicide while we're on the subject of suicide uh he had a negligent discharge um in belfast and i remember some fully trained guys i I think they were the army drivers that just hitting the floor with utter shock and confusion in their faces we did we didn't you know we didn't know it wasn't a a sniper right it's only one showman shouted "Endy" that was like oh my god which you know which idiots done that? He's you get charged. Uh, you get charged something like two weeks' salary. So it's not. It might even be more than that. It's not something you want to have on you, and it's so easy avoidable, but but people do it, right? So, um, yeah. So yeah, it can be. You know, some people say the first time they have contact with the enemy, they just completely go into shock. I. I never really experienced that. I was still kind of on the ball, but what really hit me was when we'd do training scenarios and you'd wear all the electronic equipment so you could tell if you'd been hit by, by your, the, the team that's playing enemy for the day. It's like almost everybody got fucking hit. <laughs> it was, you, you know, I remember the, our, one of our troop commanders or our corporal shouting across this lad, you know, Marine Brown take charge of your team. He's like, but they're all dead, corporal. <laughs> you know, it was really, it was <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, you come and join us then. You know, it, it's, 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 it, it, there's that, the, those munitions, surprise, surprise, are very dangerous.
0: Mm. Yeah. Right, so you're
1: going to go to Istanbul. Yeah, there, there's, this is, um, I've been, I've been in a hostage, kidnapped, stroke mugging scenario three times now in my life. I was in the South American jungle. I got uh taken hostage by two drug dealers. And that was um which one happened yeah, first? Yeah, the Istanbul one. Well, okay. Sorry I keep skipping forward. It's, okay. but it's just to just to give you some sort yeah, of framework. What's coming up? Um there's a few times in your life when you have to face the serious possibility you're going to die. And it's a very distinct feeling it's chilling it's initially it's 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 horrifying but if you just sort of bear with it 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 mellows out into a kind of weird piece it's very it's an extremely strange position to be in and i've been in that position i think at least twice now so istanbul we landed alongside we had say two of our guys would do four of our guys would do the guard duties for the day the rest of us eight could go ashore as we called it so you put on your your, some smellies and you iron a a shirt and most guys go in the first bar I was always more a bit more the tourist it's like if I'm going to be here once in my life I want to see everything you know and me and this guy Simo great great lad hello simo if you if you ever listen to this from nottingham right mad mad chap this is a guy right he wrote in magaluf he rode a scooter off the pier you know when he's rent rent and he's out there right uh, uh, and he's uh. trying to get the scooter back in from from sort of six seven feet of water and, it, and he finally drags it and he looks up at all the lads on the beach who are in hysterics and he says uh I think I flooded it. <laughs> 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 this, this if you can understand that humour, that that then you know the Royal Marines, right? <laughs> so we had heard of the cages and a lot of my story, Sean, you know, I'm I'm not gonna say I'm not proud I I make no judgment. I, I was young and I was up I was pretty much up for everything in my life. Um I think because i lacked answers as as a kiddie when i got older i was just searching for them right so any it was kind of anything goes um so simon and i we, we heard of these cages and it's a street in the old town in istanbul so istanbul istanbul you've got the new town which is sort of like any um asian muslim um, Central Asian sort of city, fairly modern, you know. You've got the old town, which is a bit like the Life of Brian, yeah. You know, but you know, half a shackle for an ex leper. That that it's all crumbling walls and it's moss moss mottled buildings and dank water dripping down in alleyways. It's real sort of crusade stuff. And along one of those streets, there's a street and I the name slips my mind. I've been there, went there twice now. I went there with Lee, the, the my friend who died um, on acid. When we we drove a, an old Leyland bus to India once, we drove to India and back on this bus. Uh, that was some trip. And they would no longer let us in this street because it was now they the government had wised up to not letting tourists in because they I think Turkey were trying to get in the European Union then, and it it it's not nice. So you've got this street. And if your, let's say, husband is banged up in the, is it the Salamanca prison, that, that one that's in Midnight Express, oh. uh, yeah, real nasty sort of place to find yourself, right? So if your husband's in there for you know, some heinous crime, his wife can go and pay his debt to society through prostit- prostituting herself in this street. What? And it's called cages because they kept them all... In cages. That's something that the state allows as organised. Yeah, yeah. Something I've learned from my travels. Sh- I've, I've lived, worked, and travelled now in eighty different countries on all seven continents. I know now there's differences between cultures. Whereas when I was younger, you know, when I was a naive sort of you know nineteen, twenty year old going to Bangkok for the first time, I just thought maybe. People are different colors. We might, you know, this guy might use chopsticks, I use enough, but we're all pretty much the same, right? We've got the same values. We've got the same thought. We've got the same psychology. What I know now is like just that all goes out the window. You, so, you know, people are different. It's fine. It's fine. We're not supposed to be the same, right? But, yeah, this is an ancient um, Arabic culture. So, and, so if they had this in America, I could just say it to my girlfriend.
0: Well, you go and prostitute yourself, and I can get a reduced sentence? Yeah, Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> Getting a slap around the face. Exactly. <laughs>
1: and I should say, this is the story we got. You know, you might have one of your your viewers says, "Actually, no, it was slightly, you know, a different version." But this is what we we, we this is how we understand. It will it. be googled. It will be comments. Yeah. <laughs> <coming> and in, <laughs> so, in the old days, you had all these girls locked up in cages. And the guys would walk down the street and they'd pick their girl, a bit, a bit like a modern brothel. But in in this case, it's all just, a, I guess you say a bit seedier and a bit, bit nastier. Right. So of course we're young lads full of testosterone and alcohol. Uh, we want to go and see, you know, what, what's the score there. So we went down and um, it, it, if I'm not big, I just want to say now I'm not like massively huge. I'm, 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 I, I don't like anyone exploited, man or woman. And so, um, and uh, so I'm not, you know, like it's like on a night out when all my friends want to go to the lap dancing bar. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, do we have to? It's just not, to sit, stand there and pay money. Do you, It's just, the, the last time I went to a lap dancing club and I only go there on stag do's when, when it's like the stag wants to go, right? This girl came up to me and she said, do you want to dance? And I said, oh, no, thanks. I've been I've been dancing all night. <laughs> <You> know, right. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know she meant you want to go and you know in the cubicle, and I'm going to put a show on for you, and you're going to give me your credit card, and I'm going to put an extortion amount of money on it, right?
0: Well, when you're so, in your twenties, it's understandable. Um, I had a lesbian internet porn wife who was bisexual, and when we got married in Vegas, she wanted to go to the brothel.
1: Oh wow! But they wouldn't let her in because um, it was a gentleman's club only. Yeah. when i was in bangkok in i think the first time was 92 it's not the sanitized you know legal health and safety place it no is it's now. sad isn't it? a lot of child trafficking and stuff we i got in a fight with a thai bouncer so basically the thai equivalent of the triads in this club again it, 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 it was the story i'm going to come on to is over a bar bill and so the the no way you're having my money side of me came out and I just offered this guy out. We ended up having a battle. He broke my nose in this in this fight. Um, I went to the hospital to get my nose stitched up. And while I was there, I came out and the, the owner of the club was sat in the waiting room and he came over, sort of cap in hand job and went, Look, I'm really sorry. I own the club, but the mafia run it, it it's just how it is. I'm really sorry. We don't do this in our culture. You know, you don't hurt a tourist. Um, how can I make it up to you? And so he ended up g- giving me sort of like 25 pounds, the equivalent in bar of his own money, which is a, a lot as an apology. And and he gave us two sort of escorts for the for the nights from one of his clubs. And they were dear girls. They took us all around. But the first place he took us was a boy bar, right? <laughs> and a lady it, boy bar yeah no a boy bar not oh, not lady boy boy like bar male prostitution yes yeah <laughs> male go go dancers right so if you think that bar in um, star wars is an eye opener <laughs> no you go into a boy bar as a 22 year old royal marines commando and the guy taking money on the door is sat on a school- stool with no pants on <laughs> ma- masturbating Right, because part of these guys' job description is they've got to maintain a at least a semi all the time no. because you know it's that's their biggest product, right? And so these girls, uh, for some reason, thought we might want to go in a boy bar. It was, it was quite an eye opener. <laughs> um, yeah, quite funny. So anyway, going back to. Um, the turkish possibly prisoners wives oh, prostitutes no no the funny thing about that is we were sat at a restaurant with these two girls okay and we we ordered the food and young and drunk i was i i suddenly start make this barking noise right and these two girls and and i was with a south african chap that i was travelling with they look at me like what you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm doing the um, ventriloquist barking <laughs> under the table so i take a bit of chicken out of my stir fry and i, I feed it and then they're all like (laughs) in hysterics right and then it's like okay i'll take another bit and then right so the next day after all the craziness had gone on we're talking fighting the thai mafia no broken nose compensation two girls escorting us for the night going in a boy bar right this this south african lad turned to me he went that was so funny last night man (laughs) I'm like what was he said that dog under the table oh man mm-hmm. that was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so going back to istanbul just uh, switching continents here or uh, certainly switching cities we're 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 checking out this street you know and it's just it's a freaking eye opener Sean, you know not the most these girls aren't going to miss win miss world is is you know not not i know we don't (laughs) we don't judge people on how we look but that it was quite it all looked a bit rough down there and uh for some reason this kai tai this Thai lady boy was in amongst this these other girls who i assumed were, were 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 local i'm guessing you know what we've what with the way the world is changing, there's probably Central Europeans had been um, pimped into this kind of way of life. I don't think it, I don't think it was the like the olden day scenario of paying your husband's debt as st- strictly as it as it maybe was then. But uh, I sh- this this lady boy mistook must have mistook one of my facial gestures for thinking I was laughing at, her, which I there's just no way I would do that right up probably fascinated but that was about that was about it she just stood up and whacked me in the bollocks and it was that was the that was the man side definitely coming out because it hurt it really really hurt so uh so we stood there and this spivy looking guy comes up behind but if you've never seen a spiv before you're probably not gonna you know he's got this really sharp suit the pinstripes razor thin tie Grease back hair, Turkish local, and he says, Guys, guys, you want to come to my my bar? We're we, uh, all staffed by Thai girls. So we're, as I said, you know, we're full of alcohol and testosterone and stupidity. We're like, Okay, we'll come to your bar. And the guy led us away, and I turned to Sima, I said, You know, this is going to end in tears, don't you? And he went, Yeah come on let's go (laughs) so we followed this guy all up these back back alleyways and back stairs and and uh he led us through this hole in the wall which is big like old oak door into a in real kind of sort of um fantasy castle type of door he pulled it open and we went through this very low doorway and lo and behold we found ourselves in a bar so, of course, we're thinking Thai girls, where' there's all these, you know, we've heard about these Thai, Thai, Thai. I don't think I'd been to Thailand then. So, I've heard about these girls. Aren't they really beautiful? And, and these two girls came over and sat down with us. They, I don't think they, either of them had ever been to Thailand in their life. I'll be honest, I don't think they probably knew where Thailand was. And drinks were all placed in front of us, okay? Some people will be recognized in this scenario, Sean. I was young. I had no idea. I'm just like Thai girls. Come on, where are they? Come on. So anyway, we slam these drinks, and I'm like, like this to the barman to come. Home. I said, "Come on, where? Where's these Thai girls then?" That's we're not here to talk. We were kind of making small talk with these two girls. They, they, I'm not sure if they were Turkish or Central European or something, but they, they were. You know, they, they didn't really want to have a conversation with us. And the guy goes, "Come, come." Well, okay, right now we're gonna, you know. Going to meet these 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 women. So he led us down this underground passageway, um, real like Dungeons and Dragons type stuff. And then we stopped at a doorway. I thought, Ah, this is the the lockup where they keep all the Thai girls, right? Okay, you know, we really have that drunk and stupid. And he opened the door, and before we knew it, we'd kind of like stepped through as you do, and then the door slammed and. Simmo and I stood there in a room, with a, the obvious mafia don was sat behind this big wooden desk. He had the pinstripe, you know, double-breasted suit, big purple tie, purple braces, purple socks, shiny brogues. Just really looking like um, um. Oh, I'm trying to think of that American actor, the one in Apocalypse Now. What's his name? Always play the Mafia, Don. It's a long time since I've seen that. Are we talking um, The Godfather? The one who talks like he's got... Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, yeah. This, so you've got this Marlon Brando dude sat behind the desk and down each side were four of his goons. And so the thing you need to know about gangs, Mafia, whether it's Mafia, Triads, to a certain extent the military is you're recruit recruiting people that don't always have a lot of other options, right? Some of these gangsters, they're sociopathic by nature because they've never been shown love. So they don't. Un- it's not. It's not programmed into their brain. Um, but, uh, I think we discussed a bit before that some of the Thai tri- triads I met were just utterly vicious, Sean. Just real. I don't know. N- not psychopaths, but but sociopathic. They they would they could smash your face in, and and they they wouldn't ten minutes later they'd have forgotten about it you know it re- really so these guys in this Turkish underground dungeon stroke office they were nasty dudes right I'm sure you you've met your fair share but you know the difference there's serious nasty dudes and there's guys that just want to pretend that they're nasty right and there's a big big difference these are the the serious ones so the mafia don guy Gets his bar tariff and goes, so to come in my club, it's, you know, 50 US dollars each. Uh, You had two of my girls, it's $100 a piece. You know, I'm I'm making up the statistics here, so you might hear me on another podcast say something slightly different. But it was was along these lines. So we end up with this ridiculous bill for buying these girls drinks, which was, hang on, sorry, when did that happen? And it's uh, 500 US dollars. Of course, we haven't got 500 US we're, dollars. We're not American tourists. And the other thing is, where, of course, we're not intimidated like American tourists. And I'd shoved all my money down my sock just on a whim when this guy said, come to my bar. I'm like, you know, I'd put my credit card and my my money in my sock. I still had on a, a 6,000 pound Rolex. Um. 6000 pound in today's money it was it's still a lot of money back then it were they are looking at your Rolex well this is the thing right and i had a camera that was quite expensive in a in a, like a bum bag around my waist right and uh so the guys like 500 us dollars. So, so the first thing out of my mouth was fuck off i said listen open that door now we ain't paying nothing mate well you know that wasn't going to happen
2: so these guys all
1: start to get get Larry, and I, I looked at the guy. I said, "Get the police here now!" He went. He shrugged. Okay. So we sat there. It's probably his cousin. It's all silence. You know. Five minutes later, in comes this policeman type. I thought, yes, here we go, freedom. <laughs> he walked over to this bar tower. He looked at it and went. Looked at me. Looked at Simo. Looked at the Mafia door and he went, hmm, walked out. I <laughs> like, Ooh. oh no. I was like, oh dear. So he walked out. And it got to this situation where four of these guys left the room and they just left like two of their, their cronies on each side of the room and this Mafia guy. And I'm looking at Simo. And yes, we really were that young and dumb that we would have taken them on. Did your military training give you confidence? It, too much confidence. It it would have been stupid, Sean. It wouldn't have ended not ni- either way. It wouldn't have ended nicely. But you know, we're trained commandos. We're, we're not going to get intimidated by anyone, and we're not. we certainly not giving you our freaking money, you know. <laughs> so I'm looking at Simo, and we're kind of silently nodding back and forth. One, two. And on the three the door opens again and the guys come back in and that, you were gonna like, attack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um not not a clever idea, but that's you know I've I've done probably equally as stupid things many times in my life. So these guys come back in and uh, and then it's then it's like similar look, let's just, just get out of here. So I stood up, the guy came, I pushed him against the wall, made for the door, big mistake these guys grabbed me and the guy that I pushed just grabbed my hair when I had hair back then and he smashed my head against the wall like 10 times really he was doing it as hard as he could I was kind of mock softening the blows or you know a mock kind of yelling as if he's really hurting me and like you're hurting a tourist dear buddy you know you, you you but but in, in truth, I'm just sort of softening the blowers as, as, to, not to let my head crack into this wall. And then it was like, right, command decision here. This is a bit stupid. Just a similar payday guy. Like, my money's in my sock. I'm, I'm, I'm So I get my wallet out and there's like five bucks in it or whatever, I don't know. Is, is it lira, I think, in Turkey? So there's there's just a few bucks. And, and I handed that to the guy. And to be honest, I was happy to stop it then before they started looking at my watch and my camera. It was like, let's just... Simo reached it into his wallet and he had a lot more money. I don't know if it was a hundred bucks or, but even if it was, I mean, 25 bucks was quite a lot of money, you know, 20, 20 years ago. So, and he handed the money. Then they just grabbed us and almost frog marched us through this passageway. A door opened into a back alley and they threw us on top of each other. <sighs> what a story, man. And we just landed on top of each other and we we're in hysterics. You know, it was the final uh! It's the funniest thing that <laughs> one of the funniest thing that's ever happened to us, you know. And um the the irony here, Sean, is is like this isn't this is a normal story for a Royal Marine. This isn't even I wouldn't tell this to the guys in the pub. It's not that's just no, normal behaviour. It's I mean, one of the sadder parts of being in, in the Marines is you you know a lot of young men ma- a lot of men who die young through such, you know there were two guys train surfing in Thailand. They'd gone up on the roof. Train surfing? Train surfing. What does that mean? That means climbing out the window of a train and getting on the roof. Okay. Which is great fun until a tunnel comes, and then you realize you haven't got time to get off that roof. And so these two lads were were killed doing that. Um, uh, Another Simo, who was the... um, we lost a chap within the second week in northern ireland uh, i was on the main gate so i had my sat rifle i'm opening the gate letting the cars in and out and searching the odd vehicle my my buddy simo was up top keeping lookout so co- covering me right and the patrol all formed up, and they all went out. And they call it a multiple. It's made up of bricks, so it's made up of four-man teams. Four fours is sixteen. That's a multiple. One one out the front gate. One one out the back gate. No sooner had they got a few meters down the road than bang 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 bang. It's a really distinct sound that that that. I mean. Yeah, what I'm trying to say, is it doesn't sound like fireworks. It's high-velocity rifle shots going off, and I just shouted up to Simo, "That don't sound good, mate, does it?" And he's like, "No, nah, no." I'm listening to the radio, and it suddenly comes over the radio. It's the the like we were November five zero Bravo our call sign. So this call sign comes over the radio. Contact one marine hit way out, and it starts to filter through that that a car is driven through the patrol fired two shots at one of the Marines and the Marines have fired 18 shots back, you know, but in the process of that happening, one of the guys was shot dead. Um, so in the, 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 so only in our second week of a, of what's going to be a four and a half month, five month tour, we've got to deal with the fact that one of our brothers is all, you know, already, he's already, uh, yeah, he's brown bread, and we've we've just got to get on and you know keep doing this job. So, but the point of that story is Simo, who was up above me, shortly after that, got killed on his motorbike.
0: Bloody yeah. hell!
1: Another buddy in the in in another company that I was in in my commander unit, um, he was running away from the police on leave. So they'd been up to some drunken shenanigan, didn't want to get arrested. So he'd done a runner, and he jumped off a rooftop and landed on a spike and um, his mother wanted no Marines at his funeral, which was quite that kind of hurt, you know, one of the loveliest men I met uh, Pinhead, his nickname was, he was on ship with me. He was, when I joined the ship, I kind of met by these, you know, sort of surly blokes as Marines kind of, are a bit by nature, and but one of them just came up and went, Hiya, Chris. Shook my hand, and went, I'm Steve. Anything you need, mate? You just come, and it was, it was really nice, you know, it really made a big impression. He was a dear, dear man, and he went on to be a, become a dog handler in London. Um, he was at some nuclear secret bunker, I won't say the name of it, but he was a dog handler there, and he was going to work one day with his mate on the back of the motorbike. and a woman pulled out on the A road in London, you know, the, one of the ring roads. And we, we, I'm guessing she didn't check a mirror and she just knocked the two of them off the bike. So Steve and his oppo were in the middle of the road, just laughing because that's what Marines do, as you probably can gather. They're, they're laughing. And then a truck came and ran over over the top of no. Steve. Yeah. When I went to his funeral, I've never... Uh-huh. I'm not an emotional person now by nature because I choose not to be. I, I, when you've been to some of the places I've been to, I'm not going there again, Sean, you know? So I, my emotions are very much in check now. I, I, um, You know, you might get something out of me back in the days when I was a drinker, if I was really, really fricking pissed, man, you might get a tear out of me. But, but this funeral, that was the most emotional thing I've ever seen. The sea was a flood of military in all their best uniforms. It's navy there. There were there were there were female sailors just cr- just crying through the you know from the beginning of the service to the end. There were guys piling into the bar the night before, and they made the uh, barman play Kylie on the on the on the or or everyone was shoving their money in the jukebox and choosing the Kylie track because Steve loved Kylie Minogue. Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in um, that day in the church they had his dog his Rottweiler and they had a marine in full blues uniform holding his dog at the door of the church mm. and when they bre- brought Steve's body in that dog just started howling like it that's my master and he's not coming back you know mm. and if if there wasn't you know, if everyone in that church wasn't crying then than they were now. You know, it was it was just that was uh, pretty pretty savage. So, yeah, we're probably digressing a bit, aren't we? You said one of the
0: scariest moments in your life was getting kidnapped in South America. Yeah, which country was
2: that, and what happened? A French Guiana. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So as I said, I've, um, I say this, Sean, not to sound big headed or conceited, but you've got to remember I had a time in my life. I had nothing and everybody deserted me bar one friend. I was severely mentally ill. I mean, I was a, you shouldn't use this phrase, but in, in the literary sense, we're both authors. I was a madman, right? I almost died whilst working for the Hong Kong triads. in in, in And it, it just, it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice for anyone. As you, have you As I know you've been through, it's not nice for your family. You have to deal with all this stuff, you know. And so I just want, I say this to shine a light out there for anyone. If you're going through addiction, just use it as an experience and move on, you know, because I've gone on, I've lived, worked and traveled in, 80 countries now across all seven continents. I'm a pilot, qualified pilot, qualified skydiver, advanced scuba diver. Um, I've explored the Antarctic Polar Circle. I've scuba dived on icebergs down there. I've snorkeled with leopard seals. I've backpacked through every single country in North, South and Central America. I've camped out in the jungle catching piranhas. You know my my childhood uh, hero Tarzan, um, as you know, best-selling author, which was a you know quite a it's quite a special moment when you turn you've turned your life for you know for the good that that much. I'm an extremely proud partner and father, um, and I'm a thousand mile. Run the last year. I think you might have mentioned I ran a thousand miles nonstop. Uh, hashtag hashtag nine 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 miles. For anyone who wants to find out more, I had spinal surgery, so I hadn't been able to run for two years. I'd had a open surgery on my back. I'd done no training, no preparation. But I, I a wanted to achieve one of my goals, and you, 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 you've always got to do that, right? That's just a fundamental. You get one life if you live it right one life is enough right but the other thing is i wanted to raise awareness of this alarming rate of veteran suicide and ask the government what what are you doing about it you know they won't even register the statistics of all these people that are killing themselves because of their phony illuminati oil wars yeah, and and it's and i also want to highlight that this is what the military are being used for now—it's—it's it's an awful situation. It's so far away from what we joined up for. And of course, once you're in, you got no choice—you've got to go. You know, you, you're in your dream career and you've worked so hard at it. It's not like you can stand up and go, "No, this this ain't a goer, Sarge." You know, it, it, it's a very tough situation to put young men and women in. So I'm up there at John O'Groats, haven't put a pair of running shoes on for two and a half years, I've got a 14 kilo backpack or Bergen as we discussed and I just announced to my audience in a Facebook live I'm running to Land's End, I'm running an ultramarathon every day um, I'm doing it to raise awareness of this alarming rate of veteran suicide and I promise you I will do it, there's no other option and so And the reason I'm putting it like that is I want to show there's such misconception about drugs and the relationship between drugs and addiction, which are two almost completely separate things, Sean. Addiction is a mental health condition. The notion that our government wants to put across is that drugs cause addiction is so utterly ludicrous. It's like saying... I bought a car and it's making me have speeding tickets. It's, it's really that stupid. And of course, all the time, you've got this corrupted dialogue going on. You can't get to the truth. You can't get the real statistics out. You can't have people like me that say, no, actually, you know, yeah, I had a bit of a tough time for a while, but I don't regret it one single bit. And I have the best life now that it is possible to lead. I'm one of the very few people I've ever met, I've achieved all of my goals, you know, I'm not a, oh I want to do a skydive, it's like no I've done, you know, I did that uh, it's, it's. oh I wouldn't mind running did I? no, I, I did that, oh, I'd like to write a book one day, no, I did that and I, again, you know, I'm not trying to sound conceited, it's, I, I just when I'm up there at John and Gross I want to show the world what dr- us drug addicts are capable of, because being a drug addict is probably next to my, my beautiful son, it's the thing I'm most proud of And if that shocks people to hear, then it's probably you're not, you haven't been on the journey that that some of us have. I call it enlightenment, you know. And and I think until we start framing things with the truth, then more servicemen are going to kill themselves because you've got this terrible situation where servicemen profess to help their buddies that are struggling, and, and, and servicemen and women, I should say, sorry, um, profess to want to help their struggling buddies who are depressed. They call it the black dog, right? Well, what's one of the biggest causes that's, that's really upsetting the lives of these veterans? It's drugs and alcohol, right? You put that into any equation when you've got childhood trauma, battlefield trauma. You've come out of the forces. You've got all that insecurity and lack of lack of a system anymore to, to have to deal with. You are pouring alcohol on top, which they call self medicating, or you're taking drugs. You get so desperate, your family just have to say, "Look, you've got to step away from us from from a bit, Dad. You know, you 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 know, go and sort yourself out." So you've got loneliness in the equation. Why can't you talk to all your buddies and your oppos? Because they're all, all all on their high horses. Thinking that people in the forces don't do drugs, well, they need to get real, Sean. You know, people in the forces are a cross section of society. So if you know, if we're going to include alcohol, ninety-five percent of society drink, right? Same in the forces. Alcohol. Remember, it's the worst drug. I would say that the majority of
0: my friends in prison were veterans.
1: Yeah,
0: Marines, so, Navy,
1: you name it. So taking this ludicrous stance that service people don't take substances, when your job, in essence, is to go and drop a bomb on that village, if that's what you're told to do, the notion that you can do such an e—let's e- talk in biblical terms—such an evil act, right? But you're not going to go and snort a little bit of powder from a from a weed that grows in the dirt and party for four hours, and make a knob of yourself. There's no understanding there, you know.
0: A lot of the soldiers I met in prison were traumatised through the battlefield experience, like you described. Didn't get the aftercare when they came back to America, got on street drugs and just fell into that life of crime and drug use.
1: Yeah, that's a that's another thing as well that in America they have veterans courts. Again, I think it's something the British government have have it's been proposed to them and they've said no. And it's not that veterans should be treated specially um, or as as you, it's just that the circumstances are unique. Very often when a veteran finds himself falling foul of the law, it's not because he's a a hardened criminal, it's because of the circumstances that he's found himself in, which is two different things, right? There's premeditated, I'm going to go out and rob this person, steal that okay you know you you end up in prison for a serviceman it's kind of the domestic violence that escalates out of control because they obviously lost self control through 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 um, through the situation that they found themselves in it it's it's maybe gbh because they've gone and punched someone that's talked to them the wrong way because in the military there's a set way you do things if you're going to you know, you're going to say bad mouth someone in the military, you've got to be prepared to back up physically. If not, you don't bad mouth them, you just take a hit on that one, you know? I it's, felt
0: that like that when I got out of prison, when people talk to me in a certain way and you can't speak like that in prison. You're
1: like. <sighs> took me a long time, Sean, to realize in, when I was in, was we call it, Civvy Street, Civilian Street, that if someone wrongs you, you can't just go up and confront them. And it's some would argue it's maybe a bit of a shame in some situations because the way certain individuals behave, it's it's probably a shame someone hasn't punched them over over the years, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, so this is the situation with veterans: is people got to get off their high horses, stop treat, treat, treating alcohol as some golden elixir that that we should all celebrate because it's not; it's it's just a toxic poison that 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 can destroy lives and stop making differencing between alcohol just because it's legal and, and other substances. You know, they're all they're all much 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 of a much, you know. And don't go thinking that that just because you haven't experienced it that the guy standing next to you hasn't either, because they probably have. You've touched on um, a few important things there. The
0: establishment profit from the status quo which is the criminalization of addiction and prohibition. Yeah. you have seen the people rebel against that now with decriminalization of weed, and we've seen the success in Portugal, decriminalization of heroin even. And then you also touched on about addiction. So my journey, what my therapist helped me with, was that there's nothing wrong with having an addictive personality if you channel that into positive addictions. And that was a big epiphany moment for me. I was just this wild party person, so now what keeps my head straight is the fitness classes, you know, doing the weights at the gym, um, yoga, meditation, all these different things. And I can see that that's obviously been the big thing to help you stay
1: level-headed, is it? I think all, for people of our ilk, all roads seem to lead to Rome, don't they? Like, <laughs> you know, this is why there's a big takeoff in sort of triathlon. And I did my first Olympic triathlon the other day and i um, I'm just in the, at the moment I'm contemplating whether I should do a quadruple Ironman for my 50th birthday. (laughs) And that will be with two months. You're supposed to do like 10 years training just for an Ironman, right? (laughs) I'll be doing three months training to do four, four in a row. The only thing that's (sighs) holding me back is I've, have got some serious, not majorly serious injuries, but I carry quite a few injuries and, um, Again, that's another story. But um, yeah, I I never went down the self help that the um, support group route. I I I went. I have been to an NA meeting, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I much prefer a scientific approach to addiction. You know, It, it explains what you're experiencing, and then you, if you can understand that addiction is a learned psychological condition, so. If you go to like Pavlov's dogs or the rat in the cage example, the rat learns to push the button and he gets a food pellet. So pushes a button, gets a food pellet. Pushes a button, gets the food pellet. When the day comes, you take the food pellet away. What does the rat do to solve all his problems? It pushes the button, right? But he doesn't get the reward. So what does he do? He pushes the button again, but he doesn't get the reward. If you can understand that, that's addiction. You you start taking a, a pillar of potion because it you get rewards from it you know I think a lot of us in the dance era found out a lot about ourselves and and society and who we were and 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 I certainly learned things I was capable of that school would have told me I was a failure at you know and I became a best-selling author through this sort of in in enlightened experience and so I had rewards in the early days. I found I could write. I could I could party. I could dance like a blooming banshee. You know, was, I could I could draw pictures when I was can you to- demonstrate that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can just hold my hoodie. But I do charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I never did the white gloves and the gloves. whistle. No, no, that was not. that. Sorry, but you're gonna you're gonna look a knob doing that in, in, in anyone's eyes. Where you are when you look back in a photo of yourself twenty years later, right?
0: <coughs> you haven't seen me getting onto scooter yeah. in my um, body combat class <laughs> when I was young. Life was more mystical, logical, <laughs> and that's now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm I'm going to Pilates. That's that's you could do a whole podcast on that. Right actually, <laughs> so yeah. So you got this rat in the cage scenario, and so I learned all these things. And then when my life, when it stopped working, because eventually, you're taking crystal meth, for example. You know, you're sometimes not sleeping for nine days on end. It's not going to end right. Okay, your life starts to fall down around your ears. And the definition of addiction just a very simple one for anyone who doesn't understand it is when you start changing your routine to accommodate the drug whether that be alcohol or a, or a narcotic when you start saying sorry john I'm not i'm not coming bowling on a tuesday I've, I've got i've got stuff to do but really it's because you know you want your bottle of wine in that evening and that that that's addiction that your 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 life is starting to suffer your relationships your social groups your social interactions, the tidiness of your house, the state of your car, your your getting to work on all these things just slowly start to suffer. Well, what do you do when 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 you're experiencing addiction? What does the rat do when he wants to fix things? You push the button again. You take more drugs, and of course, what happens to your life? It kind of keeps spiraling out of control, and and you're in this situation where you can't work out why. So, what do you do? You take more drugs, or you drink more drink, and you constantly in this this state of, of do the action, ruin your bit life a bit more. But you, but because no one's ever explained what's happening to you, because they don't educate young people as to what addiction is, because they don't talk about it, you know, because it's taboo to talk about. No one who's who's going through what I went through really realizes. So, you are in this thing called denial, and it's fine because eventually. And I mean, it's not fine if you die. Um, you know, let's let, let's let's we have to consider that. But statist- let's talk statistically. Most people who go through an addiction, whether it's sex, food, gambling, they not they don't die, or even drugs, right? So I want to try and get the emotional angle out of it because when we cloud things with emotion, then there's there's no logical debate, right? So you, you you're you're in this scenario where you start to think, hang on. I think my life's like not working anymore. I I, I don't see my friends anymore. Um, I, I haven't bought clothes for quite a while. I my I can't remember the last time I ate. My family won't speak to me because they don't know how. You know, maybe I should st- start changing my life. And It's when you hit that absolute rock bottom is when you have that epiphany. So note.
0: you went through this with your own crystal meth addiction. Yeah.
1: How did that come about? Um, so I left the Marines to go and move to Hong Kong. I'd started a business part-time in the Marines and it became a million dollar turnover business within, I gave it hard work, gave it about a year. I got put in touch with a guy in Hong Kong who was in the British Army in Hong Kong. So a Hong Kong Chinese guy. Um, Vince's name was, he's, he's dead now, but in my book, he's Vance. Very, very dear, kind man. And I said, Vance, I've heard uh, through one of my oppos here that you're um, you're into this marketing stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, look, can I, I? I'm I'm involved in this company. Can I send you my my distributorship number? And I'm and, and because they're opening in Hong Kong next week. He said, Yeah, send me your number. I'll, I'll sign up under you. I'll, I'll and cut a long story short, this guy absolutely nailed it. Off my my first month's bonus check was. Two thousand seven hundred pounds. So, and this is twenty years ago, Sean. So, I was earning eight hundred pounds in the military a month. I'm getting two thousand seven hundred for my business. My, it was the Asia Pacific expansion of this company. It was called Corum International, if anyone remembers it. And I had the biggest business in the Asia Pacific for this company, and I'd started it part time. You know, um, I had the first ever network marketing operation in mainland China and I was heralded as what they call diamond. It was the highest position you could get to in this this network. I was on track to be, I was already a silver. I had gold and then diamond to go, right? And I'm not one of these guys, I I never count my chickens. I'm always a bit like, when the money's in the bank, then we will believe it, right? So leap forward a bit. By the time I put my 18 months notice in the Marines, got out to Hong Kong to really smash this thing, and yeah, I'm... I'm going to get that Porsche that I've got pinned to my fridge, the picture pinned to my fridge. All that motivational stuff that we we learn a bit about. Um, I spent my resettlement grant to go and see Anthony Robbins, and you know he taught us how to walk on fire and all these kind of stuff. That's how keen I was to to get this thing off the ground. So there I am. I'm I'm in Hong Kong. I'm bunking in the military barracks illegally because. a a funny thing happened i came down with kidney stones Mm. so hot in hong kong i wasn't drinking but i'd drunk a milkshake during the day rushing between business meetings as my business was crashing anyway it was kind of a you know there wasn't an awful lot i could do suddenly i came down the most intense pain i'd ever had in my life and i just collapsed on the guardroom floor at hms tamar in hong kong They um Gurkha got on the phone to the duty sergeant it's all in eating smoke by the way um, and the, he's, the Gurkha they come from Nepal right they're British soldiers but they come from the mountains of Nepal he said uh, and they call everyone sir which is quite endearing they don't, they don't care what rank you are they just call you sir mm. so he's like oh Sab 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 you must come to the guard room now so he must have said something disarming, like "I'm on my coffee break," you know. I'll be. There. He's like, "No, Sab you! No understand? It's one of the marine. He, he's very sick. I think he's gonna die." And like that. And this next thing I knew, this army sergeant was at my side, holding my hand, going, "Mate, you're all right. You're all right. You're all right." And I'm, I, I was trying to write my phone number down because I thought I was dying. Right, very different that kind of dying to the other scenarios I'll I'll come on to. So I'm trying to write my phone number down. They whisk me across to the, uh, I think it's called Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which was on the Kowloon side of Hong Kong. And lo and behold, and and I'm puking up on the floor. I've got these two nurses from the, Um, I think it's the Queen's Alexandra and nursing, the Corns. you know, it's a military type of nurse. And I, and I looked at one of them, I said, "Where, wait, you know, when, when's the doctor coming? She said, why, why? I said, because if, he, if he's not here soon, I'm going to jump out the window. And I wasn't joking, Sean, I was in that much pain, I was going to jump out the window. And it turned out kidney stones of all things, right? So I'm lying there recovering after they gave me this potion to make them go away. How uh, do they go away? They they give you this pink drink to drink, and it it dissolves whatever's left in your urinary tract. That's what's giving you. It's like trying to pee, but you, you but you've got something stuck down there, right? Because they're stuck in your urinary tract and and grabbing onto the yeah, they come out in your, your urine. So it's oh. it's um it's like your pee shooter is malfunctioning. You know, you got a blockage, and uh, so. There I am, and I'm wallowing in heaven in hospital. They've left the air by my bed, so or the gas. So I'm just sticking the gas on, and I'm watching. I was watching a Michael Jackson concert, thinking, "Wow, this dude's good, isn't it? You know, I'm sniffing this gas. This is my kind of <laughs> addictive personality coming out. And uh, suddenly the orderly appeared, and this little Chinese guy says, "Uh, and he was a little Chinese guy." I'm not being belittling, <laughs> as I've been called up for before. So he actually was a small Chinese orderly. And he came up. He went, ah, right, you've got to go to the phone right away. The The adjutant of the barracks is on the phone to you. So I'm like, oh God. So I picked up the phone and the adjutant is a is in army terms, he's a captain. So this guy, he's obviously in charge of the barracks. He's got to hear that a Marine has hit the deck, but no one knows who I am because I'm staying there illegally because I'm, ho- I'm technically homeless. You know, I've moved from England. I'd rented my house out back in England, which all that, you know that turned into big problems, and so I'm on the phone, uh, sir. Marine, oh, oh, our mysterious marine. He, he booms down the phone. What the hell do you think you're doing stowing away on Her Majesty's property? I'm like, what? He's don't you know Hong Kong is Crown territory? You need permission to enter this place. Oh, crown said report to me right when you get out of the hospital report to me right away i thought yeah right mate i'm really gonna do that (laughs) so i snuck grabbed my stuff went back to the barracks snuck past the guy on the gate um the gurkha on the gate salutes me so right and i'm just don't want anyone to see me. I grabbed my burger and chucked everything in it, grabbed my briefcase, grabbed my suits out of the, all the, my business suits out of the locker. And I just ducked out of there. And I went to live with my 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 dear brother, Vance, my Chinese business partner. And uh, so, yeah. So that's, so uh, I'm in Hong Kong. I went through a bizarre series of jobs because I'm stuck there, Sean. I'm not, I don't want to go back to England. I've gone there to make my fortune. And I'm a very sort of misguided materialistic young man. Um, I obviously don't know the, the sort of things that I know now that are important in life, and certainly money isn't really one of them. Not not the abundance of money I wanted back then. We can say so. I'm in Hong Kong, and I I'm stuck. I'm I'm eight thousand pounds in debt. I I can't fail. And I, and I love Hong Kong. I mean, it's a, once you get under the skin of it, it's a fascinating place. You know, I, w- I want to live in Hong Kong. And so I took on this weird job. I, I, I sold uh, computer memory chips in a company where I was only really employed because I had a white Western face. I then sold advertising space in a business directory that didn't actually exist it was just a con that we'd go and show people an advert they'd run with us that they'd never really run with us. (laughs) And some big managing director at AT AT&T wouldn't have a clue about like advertising would just sign a sign an invoice for you and you'd invoice them for a ridiculous amount of money. And I, I mean, it's all right doing it to the bigger companies because, you know, let's be honest, they probably rip off their customers as it is. Right. But, but I had to go and sell to this small guy who ran, ran a small publishing company and, you just turn around and go, Chris, that's not our advert. We, we design ours ourselves. Well, and in that moment, I felt so bad, Sean, you know, because I'm not, I've, I've done stupid things in my life. I went through a, a, a period where I really fell foul of the law and I, I was quite luckily got away of it by the skin of my, my teeth sort of thing. And, but, you know, I'm not a nasty person by, by nature and I felt bad. So I phoned up my friend that, that I'd met in the gym a big, big black dude called uh, Milton. I said, "Milton, are you still working on the door at Joe Bananas Club?" He's like, "Yeah, mate." He said, "Do they do they need Dorman?" He said, "Oh, they need Dorman all the time, dude. Come just just go and see, go and see the manager there. They'll give you a job straight away." So I thought, "Do you know what? I'm going to do that." And another part of the reason was I'd slowly become addicted to crystal meth. How did you get introduced to it? I was taking a piss in the toilet at work. And I smelt this kind of strange fragrance. It's quite a, It's not a pungent smell, It's, but it's quite unique. And I turn around and there's, lo and behold, my friend Neil Diamond is coming out the toilet cubicle. And he's a funny enough, he's a schizophrenic uh, colleague He worked in this crazy um, company I was in selling these computer trips. And it was crazy. It was real old school trading house. And again, read, eat and smoke and you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So, Neil come out he say, Chris Chris, in here, so of course, you know what that means, don't you When someone says, "Come in a toilet cubicle, either you're going to get sex or you're going to get drugs right <laughs> I wasn't lucky enough to get sex, I just <laughs> I just got crystal meth addiction right? <laughs> so uh he's like smoke some of this, and he had a bit of silver foil. He put this little tiny crystal on, heated it with a lighter, and I just sucked in the fumes for a banknote, I only one one sort of line of this stuff. I didn't think anything of it. I'm figuring it's like you know, e, or it's like I. I think I'd done one or two lines of coke by that time in my life. Not, not a lot of things, and and uh, I sat back at my desk, and I suddenly had the most amazing feeling of well-being you could ever get. It was like god had assigned one hundred thousand angels to come and massage my every molecule it was utterly brilliant sean i sat there and i just felt so at one with the world This amazing sense of tranquility peace you've got to remember i've never known peace my when you suffer childhood trauma you're you're always in turmoil you don't know it i didn't go through life thinking oh, i'm i'm a troubled guy i'm i thought i was normal but suddenly, when you, when you get introduced to like complete um, a complete state of nirvana, you realise what maybe normal could be for other people. Maybe this is what you get if you you know if your parents helped you with your homework and took you to rugby after school and good little Johnny and gave you hugs and kisses and you know. So I'm there. Just I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't wait to get some more of this stuff. So as soon as the clock struck seven, which was that we, we worked 12-hour days, I'm off, I'm on the underground, I'm going across Hong Kong to the ghetto, which is called Chunky Mansions in Hong Kong. I'm going up this filthy, decrepit beast in this aging elevator that just stunk a curry, and I'm hitting up Mark, who's a Ghanaian immigrant, and he survives in the territory because they they quite hard to get a job as a black man back then in in. in 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 hong kong they kind of call them hagwai black devil call us Guaylo, white devil or white ghost which is not maybe as derogatory as it sounds it's just you've got to remember in hong kong it wasn't that long ago we're not talking much more than 250 300 years that the first ships started appearing from europe with these weird people with ginger hair and, and blue eyes and well, to a culture that had never seen that, they that this is the devil coming, you know, and especially as we we brought them opium and we sold their silver, right? So, um, so I'm there, uh, Mark surviving by selling drugs in this hovel of a room. You know, we're talking, you think train spotting, but in Hong Kong, it's it's quite it's quite depraved, and uh, I didn't care. I'm not a judgmental person. To me, Sean, this is just life experience and if I can get some drugs off this guy even better so he didn't have any crystal meth but he sold me a bag of heroin it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do
2: when you win like are you a fist pumper
1: My addictive side that I can't get what I want, but I I need to have some, you know, not not I wasn't like when withdraw or anything like that. It was just my mind needed pacifying with some drugs to give me something, and and uh, give me this bag of heroin, and I went back and snorted a couple of, you know, you can smoke heroin, but you can also it it's pure over. There. It's called China White. It's it, it's a white powder, whereas English heroin is brown heroin from. um I'm not even sure, the, the, the growing regions. I'm guessing Afghanistan. They get it from the Golden Triangle. So it's it's this white powder, and you can snort it um, like cocaine, although I'm not suggesting anybody does. It's just that's how it is, right? Well, I say that in all seriousness, because we had two guys from Plymouth went to Cambodia fairly recently. They they wanted to par- have a party, so they bought some Coke. And what they'll do in... in Parts of Asia is because coke is very hard to get, but this white heroin is very easy. It's there in abundance. They sold these boys heroin. They went back to their hotel room. Went, wow, let's have a fat line of this stuff. Snorted a line each, and they were both found dead in the morning. You know, like in um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, they they were twenty like twenty two year old lads just out for a bit of holiday fun. And so, so there I'm in Hong Kong, and I start to buy. Just let's say ten quid's worth, ten pounds, hundred Hong Kong bucks worth of heroin, uh, worth of um, crystal meth, every fortnight. You know, every fortnight I get a bit of an, a bit of an itch, and I think, do you know what? I'm going to do that nice stuff again? That's, and I would have a kind of me night, staying up all night. Um, wasn't too much of a problem because the company I worked in, I was there for my white Western face it, in the old school Chinese bosses. Um, Psychology. He thought, if I've got an office full of white people, it looks like I've made my fortune and I'm successful. And um, so I didn't have an awful lot to do in the office, so I could go in having not slept all night and be coming down on crystal meth and chain smoking Marlborough and just playing on. They they just started to get PCs in then, so I managed to nab one and I'd play like pinball all day long, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, so I started to stay up all night. I found that I could draw. I found that I could write. I found that I could do song lyrics. You know, and I, wasn't, I wasn't like Mozart or anything, but it was important to a guy like me when I'd been told at school I was a failure at all these things. And society was happy to let me go the rest of my life thinking, well, I'm a failure because I didn't get O-levels or GCSEs. You know, this is, you know, so again, to any young people that that take the message from this you know school it's that's you you're going to find out if you if you want to you'll find out where your your future lies um so yeah there i am sure and i'm i'm taking this drug and when things all started to go wrong my girlfriend came out to live with me for a while she then got a job with british airways or she she got an interview and and i could tell she didn't like hong kong it's very hectic there it's it can be a bit seedy if you're a woman, you know, you're, you're in very close proximity to a lot of other individuals, especially on the transport and in the streets. And groping is not uncommon. And there's a lot of like body odor that you that just becomes normal. There's the permanent, in the monsoon season, and this permanent smell of like moldy washing, you know, it probably reminds you of prison, right? So, so she didn't like it. She went home and, you know, I was lonely when she went, you know, I'm not I'm not like a homesick type of person, but I, I loved that girl. She's gone, which I guess my brain took as a bit of rejection, although I wouldn't have stopped to go in for this dream interview. And I guess maybe I'd taken crystal meth a bit more then, right? And when I started working in Clubland, I did my first night working as a doorman high on crystal meth, not a, not a huge amount. But How did you get that job? I phoned this guy in my gym. So I went to this gym, very interesting experience. In Hong Kong, you can buy steroids just over the counter. Back then it's probably all changed now. So I, uh, you know, you could go in, um, I think I went in a chemist and I said, have you got Dianabol, which was, it's, it's a pill. It's not a massively strong steroid, but it just gives you a bit of bulk and, and I, Someone had introduced me to this in in the past, um, for a time in my life, and I know, I know what they how quickly they can change your body. Right, so I'm buying this dynamo. I'm going to my nearest gym, and it's full of triad bodybuilders, and they're just, it's like something from a Bruce Lee movie. You know, <laughs> whenever Bruce Lee came on the big TV screen, all these guys would just stop, put the weights down. They would just stare at the, you know, they look like those Easter Island statues just staring at their idol. You know, Hong Kong's number one son, Bruce Lee. How do you know they are triad at this point? Do they have distinct tattoos or? Um, They got all the sprawling dragon tattoos. Sprawling dragons. Yeah, Yeah. body tattoos, basically. But there's also a certain look, Sean, and, you know, it's a bit like... It's a bit like some things in life are easier to understand by the signs, the kind of esoteric nature of a situation than it is by the actual spoken word. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough now to see where society is manipulating our culture, right? You, you know, when someone's outed in the media for a certain thing, you can see the agenda behind it, right? And the case with the triads was... Like these guys had a certain look, you know, maybe it's a certain dullness in the eye, a, a lack of empathy, which is, you know, the eyes are the windows to the soul. And I, when I started to work for the triads, I really noticed this. They would communicate with just their eyes in a way I've never seen before. Yeah. Um, They'd also do all the secret, you know, like you've seen gang signs, right? They would do all that, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, you can just tell they, they adopted this as we in the Marines adopted an underground uniform when we were ashore, as we called it, i.e. not, not in work time. We'd all wear the same thing. So we'd wear chucker boots, faded jeans, fairly you know scruffyish t-shirt, and we'd wear a green fleece um, called a Heli Hansen, right? That's the Norwegian company that makes it. And so I could be in Egypt staring across a bar a guy I've never met from Adam and I know and tell me he's a Marine and I can just go and say hello. Oh, hello, mate. He he sees what I'm wearing. And it's the same with the triads. They would wear the 14K, which is the society I work for, wore white shell suit tops. Like, remember when the England shell suit tops were really popular? They would wear those and they would wear white trainers, um, slim jeans, and lots of lots of gold jewelry. And you'd see the, you might see the the tattoo coming out from above their shirt. So what year was this? This is '96 now, so a year before the handover, or the year prior to the Hong Kong handover. And uh, yeah, so you know, you got these young lads, and it's quite impressive, Sean, to, to someone who's lost, or who ended up lost. I ended up sitting on my burger and my backpack on Nathan Road in Hong Kong. It's the main artery that flows. Through the peninsula side of Hong Kong, so onto the mainland, and you know I'm watching Rolls Royces drive by. The most amount of Rolls Royces in the world at the time was Hong Kong. Um, you know I'm watching Mercedes. I'm watching all these guys that have made it in the business that I try to, and here I am. I'm I'm homeless. There's some very strange things starting to happen, which I'll I'll explain. Um, and you're utterly rejected society okay your behavior isn't conducive to living in society but to all intents and purposes uh society hasn't catered for this element that when people do drop out and and struggle right so i'm sat there on my backpack and i'm looking at these rich businesses and thinking one of you just stop pull over in your mercedes and go hello mate you're struggling aren't you look listen how about I give you a junior position in my company and we'll take it from there? You know, of course, it wasn't going to happen, right? So suddenly, fast forward, I find myself employed by the Hong Kong triads, and they're giving me money for furniture in the fr- in my flat because it was empty and it was de- almost derelict, and they're inviting me for breakfast as part of the family. Right. I never was a triathlete, I never pretended I, I, I was and I wouldn't do because you need to be a pure-blooded Chinese, right? But I was like a- affiliated by nature, the fact that I was a club nightclub doorman for them. you know, I was the go-between, between uh, the Eastern face, which is a concept of pride, and Western ignorance, which is your drunken businessman in a club pushing a Hong Kong Dilo, which is gang leader, big brother, in the chest Going, I ain't paying for fucking water. Who's this? G-? And you're like, my job was to go over and say, friend, friend, calm it down. You've just pushed the like one of the most serious men in Chai in the chest. If it, it, you, you Look around you. They'd look around and they'd see sometimes, you know, 20 sets of eyes all looking daggers at them. Like you do that again. We're going to annihilate you. And it wasn't pretty when they went into that mode. Right, that is, you pick up any weapon you can. So I'm here now. I'm, I'm a triad. You've upset me. I'm going to hurt you with that book, Sean. Yeah, great book, by the way. Plug. So, link in description you know, box. I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to knock you mm-hmm. unconscious with that book because I'm going to grip it so hard. I'm going to hit you so hard with that. That, that's the. You know, these guys they come from very underprivileged backgrounds, socio socioeconomic hardship. As I said, they've probably never known love, so they're so they have this sociopathic element. They don't, you know, they can do someone in and not not care about. It. And they have this fierce loyalty to the triad who's become their family. So there I am, you know, uh, and maybe I have fast forwarded a bit, but there I am suddenly I'm the, the front man of a Hong Kong nightclub. My boss is the most important man in the district this guy on my left he's a paid assassin he's a six foot seven guy looked like a, a horse chinese people by nature are quite small um quite short i could say this guy was six foot like seven or something he was built he looked like a horse and every so often uh he got smuggled across the border into china to do a hit on someone then they smuggle him back and he wouldn't question that sean that wouldn't he wouldn't be like you there'd be a big moral dilemma and we'd you know, let me just see if I get this right. Then
0: you were at the gym. You saw yeah. the triad, and you got a job as a bouncer. No, I,
1: I was at the gym. I met a very nice chap from London uh, called Milton Milton Whitaker, and he was working on the door of a club called Joe Bananas. Um, I he got me a job there. I started on the door. I made took crystal meth the first night because I'm always kind of in, in tired mode from my previous binge, right? And I wanted to be on the ball for my first night at work. So I'll do a quick, I think I went and did a quick line in the toilet because you can snort crystal meth and it goes straight to your brain. Like That's this. why I used to do it mostly. Yeah. It, people don't know crystal meth is the purified form of amphetamine. So, it, so whereas you might buy speed in a club, you're going to get 5% purity mixed with anything from baby powder to glucose right generally glucose people aren't that stupid so you get 5% if you're lucky you might get 15% but crystal meth is not it's not just amphetamine it's methamphetamine so it's a stronger chemical molecular structure and then it's purified so whereas even methamphetamine isn't that pure crystal meth is so pure it turns out into white crystals Look, It looks like you smashed a bit of glass or it looks very much like rock salt, right? And, you know, one, your first ever high from it, you can be awake for anything up to two days. Just, I mean, I've told um, people before, you know, you can buy a £10 bag. That that can keep you up. Well, I mean, that you, if you bought a gram, probably going to cost you about £50 back then. That I stayed up nine days once Didn't sleep Police woke me up in a hotel room Where I'd gone back with this girl I'd met While working in the club one night I hadn't slept for nine days She tried to wake me in the morning obviously And I, and I, I was just You're not going to wake someone when they're asleep After nine days right I'm dead She probably thought I was dead And she ran away Next thing the police woke me up I was so confused Sean, I didn't know my name like, Who are you? Who are you? Um, i could remember i was called chris and that was it <laughs> so i say chris i thought that was a good start if i just go with chris <laughs> i will take it from there next question bit harder where you work <laughs> like it really matters as shit where the freaking hell you work when you're woken up in a hotel room by the you know why they asked me like, where you all i can remember is that i'd been a dj in southern china I, i I blagged the job of DJ in the biggest nightclub in southern China, which is again, it's in eating smoke. It's quite a funny, funny part of the book. The book's quite funny, by the way, Sean. It's, it's important that you, to me, that it's not. I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. Do you know what I mean? It's don't feel sorry for me. My life's been great, and and uh, you know, to have a great life, you need challenges, or you're not going to grow, right?
0: How did you transition from getting a job as a bouncer? It's clicking
1: up with the triad. Right. So I went through a series of jobs. Some I got sacked for, not quite my own fault. Like I smoked a puff of a cigarette on the door one night, not knowing they had a no smoking policy for their doorman. I kind of didn't make it obvious, but a c- client just offered me a puff of his cigarette and I just went down the back alley, had three tokes, gave it back and a punter came in. And I looked at her and I joked, I went, didn't see that love, did you? And she kind of smiled. She went straight into the manager and told him, called me up in the office, said, Chris, we really liked having you here, right? We had this situation, Sean, it was it was quite funny. The Hong Kong rugby club were in. I was on my own, bouncing in a whole club. I use the term bouncer lightly. You know, the best bouncers use their vocal skills, don't they? You know, I wasn't, you know... I left the Marines, I was about 13 and a half stone and I'm short and I was real stocky bodybuilder type, you know. I left Hong Kong nine, about nine stone, maybe nine and a half stone. That's crystal meth for you, right? So anyway, I'm, I'm working in Joe Islands, The rugby club have come in. They are drunk off their heads and they are misbehaving. I'm stood outside the front door of the club on the doormat and I look in and this girl's climbed on the bar, and I? hasn't she she's climbed on the bar so i've walked in and i've gone you could you get down please and i'm i'm joking i'm not going to take the whole of the rugby club on and start getting you know i'm not going to be a jobsworth right so i'm just joking i'm like Can... she jumped off the bar and i had to catch her to stop <sighs> her right i remember it almost i remember my back almost put my back out right <sighs> so i went back to the, to the door looked around she's on the bar again so i walked in and went wait down And I'm pretending I'm really angry, but everyone can tell I'm joking. So she's like, her face drops, and she's playing along with it. She climbs down. This time I stood back, and she climbed down from the bar. I said, right, this shape. And I made the star shape. So, so everyone's like looking at each other going, oh, "What's?" So she makes a star shape. And before she knew it, I picked her up in a fireman's carry. I walked out. The club just go erupts <laughs> <irrupting laughs> in laughter. Everyone's clapping. um and I carried this girl out, I pushed the door open with my foot, plonked her on the doormat, and then I pulled the door shut. And I, <laughs> and I said, you, stand there. She said, she said um, how long for? I said, as long as I tell you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and everyone's just clapping, going, well done, mate, well done. That's the funniest thing, like, with, you know. So I was quite a popular like Dorman, you know. Is
0: that what got you in the triads?
1: No, no, sadly it's not. So anyway, that, that that job I lost for the smoking, right? I then got a job in a, 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 a bouncing on a club called Rick's Cafe, right? Um, and I had one night where I couldn't make it into work because I was so tired from coming off the meth. It was the first time I'd missed a day off working in this place and they fired me just like that. They were really strict, but it was all Scottish management for some reason in Hong Kong. But if you think back to the books like James Clavell's Taipan and and that, they were all, all the trading companies were Scottish owned, weren't they back in the day? so I don't know if that's why that connection is, but they were really strict, and they they there was no there's no like employee law over there. They want to spark you. They just spark you like that, and you 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 got you can't go to a union or something, right? So so I lost this second job and uh, went to China to do this DJ job. Uh, taught myself to DJ in an afternoon and that evening I played for three, a crowd of 300 <laughs> plus I was the entertainer. So I got them all up doing handstand competitions. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, that, that, and again, I lost that job over just again, reading and smoke. It's all, it's all in there. So I'm back in Hong Kong and I've hocked my Rolex, my treasured Rolex that I bought as a treat for myself after Northern Ireland um i had to walk into a my hong kong business partner had to ask me to leave it just all became insane he was under attack from the people in his building because his business was failing and in hong kong it's all about making your fortune if you're failing and you're not paying your bills you are scum and people are gonna let you know right and it and it very vicious aspect to that culture that we probably wouldn't understand here right so he asked me to leave I didn't realize then but you know I'm starting to get ill now and we I was in uh, I hocked my Rolex I'd got this crummy apartment on the top of a, a tenement block in the most rundown part of Wan Chai Wan Chai is it's kind of ganglang district it's red light district it's um, nightclub district it's very old. It's like the old Bruce Lee movies, you know, it's that part of Hong Kong, very kind of run down, all the buildings are weatherbeaten. And I got this apartment rented it off an Indian guy right on the top of one of these tenements, and it was crumbling. It was, uh, you'd never get another Westerner to live in there. And I loved it because I wasn't homeless anymore, you know, it was my place. And I didn't care. I had to wash out of a bucket, and there was no, you know, there was a, a, a gas cylinder to cook on you know one of those kind of setups and i just it was so old school hong kong it was all old people who wore the traditional garb that they no longer wear and it was people carrying stuff to and from the market and it was just it was almost like triad central as well and i i just loved loved it about this place so so a couple of things happen um I got asked, would I take a Filipina bar girl, she was called Apple, in as a lodger because she was homeless. It was by the guy Neil Diamond that I told you about who introduced me to meth, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm quite philanthropic, you know. I'm not going to see someone on the street, so I I, I can't give a damn whether she's a bar girl or not. Well, it's, I'm you know I'm not probably the last person that's got the right to judge anyone else's character, right? So she came to stay with me and. And it was, it it was a kerfuffle just getting in the flat. I won't even go into that, but we finally managed to get the key in the lock of this flat, get in there. There's no furniture, there's no nothing. So she's lying on a bare floor, shivering. I'm starting to figure out she's coming down on Crystal Meth, isn't she? So I made a bed of all my clothes and my bergen, and she laid on that. And I said, look, I'm going into town to buy a blanket. I'm going to go into the market. So I went into Wan Chai Market, and there's a stack of blankets in the front of an open-fronted shop. So the front a shop without a front window, you know. And um, I guess it had a shutter, right? That sort of scenario. And it's a stack of grey blankets, like hospital blankets. And I picked one up, and I looked at the label, and my life changed forever. Because on that label it had the word waste, W A S T E waste. And in that moment I realized this blanket was one of those infected with tuberculosis and smallpox and all this kind of crap that the the North American settlers and the North American army gave to the indigenous Indians back in the day, when in the days of the the frontier, you know, the Wild West to to, to decimate the native communities right and i'm there in modern day Wan chai in hong kong holding one in my arms and i'm and in that moment i'm just like what what's going on i've opened up some sort of rabbit hole here is this like some massive conspiracy that i never why haven't i seen this before and i'm looking at the girl in the shop and i'm thinking does she know about this and I'm looking at the guy on the corner of the street. Does he is this something to do with the triads? Is does this go on in England? Is this weird? Like, why the hell are these blankets here? So anyway, I ha- had to buy one. So I, I bought one. I scurried back to this room. I laid it on, I was wondering gonna lay it on this girl and she'd gone. <laughs> so so I had this very strange experience all for nothing. So it's my first night in the club, so I quickly washed because you know. I'm an ex-Marine, you wash every day, you clean, you polish your boots. And I did all that, made my way to the club. And uh, I'm stood there by the bar and I'm trying to be, you know, bouncery. y no, Bouncer is the wrong word. My job was more a go-between to make sure people didn't, like the drunken businessman, didn't say something stupid to the wrong person. Um, and I'm stood there. On the first night, I, I leant across the bar because I could get any, if I could drink I'd get all my coffees obviously on the bar and Coca-Cola, anything I wanted to drink, so I leant over to get a, a strong coffee to keep me awake all night because I'm starting to flag probably been awake for three days or, already and the guy sat at the bar just turned to me and he was an expat and I gathered he was working on the the new airport that they were building and he seemed like he'd frequented this club quite a lot he seemed to know the others and the difference between this club and the others I'd worked in is this was a Chinese owned club and it was obvious because it was mainly Chinese clientele at this early stage in the evening. Later the the tourists and expats and all the Filipino bar girls would start to come in and the disco would kick off. So at this early stage in the evening this guy just turns to me and said, You're Chris, aren't you? So I was immediately like he's taking the time to find out my name. That's kind of interesting. He said, you know, they're all triads. My ears prick up like a dog, Sean. It's, you know, I've come from a, a, a effectively a gang, the military. You know, these guys are impressive to, to my young, naive mind. And suddenly I this guy's telling me that the club I'm working in is all run by triads. Oh, I'll tell you how I got the job. So I'd wandered down into this club because I was homeless. I'd lost everything. I was destitute i burned all my bridges in business in in the companies I worked in I I I had nothing I I had no money I was just wandering the streets homeless it's a it's a horrible place to be and I thought one last guy I can try was Glenn who worked on the door of club nemo and I descended the stairs into this club the reason you go downstairs into a chinese club is they take feng shui very seriously Feng shui is the way you position your building to deflect evil spirits and bring it prosperity and good luck. But it really is taken, you know, we take, I don't know, two magpies or one magpie seriously, right? But it's kind of, we know nothing's really going to happen to us, maybe a bit of OCD or something, right? No, in Hong Kong, this superstition, it's utterly believed, 100%. It's you know, if you if you look at the old buildings, they very often have a little piece of mirror dangling outside the window. That's to reflect the evil spirits from coming in, particularly if the building's facing the wrong way. So if it's not lined up for prosperity, you have to dangle a CD outside your window and that, that shiny bit will deflect the evil. So this club, I should have known descending the stairs that this is a Chinese-owned club. It's facing the harbour. It's got the mountains behind it, way, way behind it, but behind it. That's because you always have the mountains behind for security and you have the water to your front for good luck. And it's a mirror-lined staircase. So those mirrors are to deflect evil out of the club. They have gone for maximum prosperity and fortune in this club, right? So I'm descending the stairs and I ask at the bar, "Is Glenn here, the guy just didn't speak much English, just shook his head and he points to this, kind of seedy looking character in a black suit simple black suit straight white black tie chinese a bit of a sort of bouffant hair thing going on and um you know one of his eyes looked northeast and the other one didn't right that's kind of interesting looking guy and i walked up to him and he just doesn't even look at me he just stares dead ahead and i said have you Seen my friend Glenn. Glenn to Thailand. Oh. Um he said, You can do doorman job? I said, Yeah, yeah, I can do do door. Okay, start here tomorrow night, eight o'clock. Okay. Yeah. Hope I'm not offensive doing the accents. It's just it it's this is this is how it was, right? And uh, so I can't believe it, Sean. I've gone from being destitute. I couldn't go back to it. I didn't have a return ticket or anything. I mean, I'm, I certainly wasn't going to ask my family. I mean, I've got to make this work, right? But of course, remember the rat in the cage? The way I'm trying to make it work is I'm pushing the button still and not understanding why my life's getting more chaos, right? Judy was boring. Hello. Then
2: Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem
1: some serious prizes.
2: ChumpaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So I can't believe it. I go back to my flat, I spruce myself up. I have this weird incident with the the girl and or with the blanket, I should say. And 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 here's the thing. When you're in psychosis, you don't know you're in psychosis you 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 know maybe you do after when you when doctors have told you this is what's happening, you can go ah right, that episode I had last night was psychosis da 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 da, da. well I didn't know this to me it was all normal you know these blankets infected with smallpox is completely <laughs> normal it's random I'm not sure why, but it's part it's now part of my you know my whole sort of framework my Hong Kong framework so. I got the job. I turned up at the club at eight o'clock, like he said. And uh, there's this guy telling me they're all triads. And he points at the the execution executioner. Says, you know, paid assassin, smuggled to China, does hits on people. He said, uh, Chu Chai, that's your man there. I might say different names for what are in my book, Sean. For anyone listening, it's just I use complete pseudonyms. I'm sure maybe you did.
0: Yeah, some people call me out on videos for using a different name on a different uh, story on the same story. But well, now most of my viewers understand that you have to change names for legal yeah. reasons, and sometimes you can't remember that name. And you yeah. change it to another and name, I, blah blah blah.
1: And I wrote "Eat and Smoke," you know, was eight eight or nine years ago now, and I've never. I, I, I don't know about you. I never read one of my own books. I just I write them, get them edited, and then you, you move on. It might be quite good to read one of my own, but I might actually like it. So anyway, so and so he's pointing this guy uh, Chu Chai. He says, see a man chuchai there. And this guy, he's got the England tr- shell suit top. He's got gold jewelry. Um, he's a chubby, cherub, surprisingly cherubic looking guy. So, not what you'd think. He's got this hair, this bob haircut that he's obviously. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, he's Magi. And I like, what's Magi? He's a Magi, like a, a runner. Uh, it, it, in English, means little horse. It's the name for the street-level triad in the 14K. I'm 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 thinking foot soldier, although someone's welcome to correct me on that. Um, he said, yeah, he might look nothing, but you wait until he gets in a fight. He will pick up anything if he thinks he can smash an enemy over the head with it, right? This is what I'm going to find out. So uh, he says, Jonathan at the bar there, and he comes out with some expression, and it had sap I think in it which means salt and, it, and the expression was to travel across salt water which means someone who's been abroad so Jonathan there he wants to be triad but he's kind of a wannabe and what do you mean wannabe he's well, he's like prospective. they don't trust him because he was educated in Switzerland he went to a college a chef college in Switzerland right so you've got this guy that speaks very good English he understands European culture he's caught in this situation where he understands the triad but he also understands me and where I'm coming from which which would kind of feature later in my story and and so that was it you know I'm there and uh, I'm now employed by the 14k the Dilos, one of the most important men in Wan Chai he's my boss Um, and we had a situation I'm stood there. I'm by the, I'm sat on a bar stool by the door. Again, you know, you're doing your bouncer thing, you're looking around, checking moments, smashing glasses, which happened more than you, you would believe, checking everyone's okay. And there's no, no one's drunken businessman making an idiot, idiot of himself. And I looked over and the Dilo, which did I explain that means Big Brother, the gang leader, um, the guy that gave me the job. He's sat drinking with the owner of the club. Remember what I said back to my fight in Thailand? You get a businessman owns the club, but they have to pay the the mafia to run it. Same in pretty much any club land district the world over, I'm I'm, I'm guessing. You have to pay protection money. Well, in Hong Kong, the triad that runs your district, so in the Wan Chai area of Hong Kong, it's the 14K. They run Wan Chai. Occasionally, another triad um, would come on their territory and it would all just, it would be like showdown at the OK Corral sort of thing, you know. And um, so he's, you've got Paul Eng, who's the dialogue, That's the name in my book anyway. He sat drinking with this guy um, called Peter, who owned the club. Peter was quite a nice man. He wasn't triad. He wasn't affiliated. He's he's affiliated by nature that he owns the club, right? And what had happened is two Thai, I I call them working girls, but what people might refer to as prostitutes, um, these two Thai working girls had been assigned to them for the evening as escorts, you know, look after the, this is is just kind of how it was. If you're in the triad or you, like me, you work for the triad, you just get, women would be told to go and be with you for the evening and I never actually accepted that offer because I got so mentally ill, and I wondered if this, I always thought it was some sort of test. Um, but anyway, these girls are drinking with the owner and the Dilo. And suddenly they, they got up to go to the bar to get a drink. And one of them drops to the floor. And I thought, and the other one just immediately like jumps on her and starts like shaking her. I thought, ah, uh, they can be quite immature some of these girls right and i thought they're just showing off in front of their important dates you know look at us sort of thing we've got the run of this club we're we just you know start messing around and then when i looked at the face of the girl on he he gone blue like you know and it just clicked in that moment drug she's had a, a drug overdose so i ran over pushed her friend off her Try to feel a breath, couldn't feel anything. I'd put my tongue over her mouth and I could just feel like a little bit of breath on my tongue. Took her a, a pulse. It's like hundred and eight. My stomach's rumbling. It's like... Gonna, just keep going. We're going we're we're to wrap up soon. Good. You're going to edit. Um, edit that out? Right?
0: Every now and then we get a guest who the story is so big it would make multiple podcasts yeah. and you've just proven that you are one of those guests wrap up this story and we're okay. going to have to leave it there. And uh, I imagine that the, the people out on, on YouTube are going to be like, we've got to get this guy back on. We've got yeah. to, fi- we've got to have his, finish his triad stories. We've got to finish his kidnapped in South America story, friend dead on LSD story. It's it's, it's, it's going to continue. Yeah, it's, if you if you'd be so kind. Yeah. You know. We
1: haven't really touched the surface. I mean, yeah. and, and, and also if I can ask people to remember you know, the most important part of me is the mental health, Sean. It's not the triads. It's not the being a hero commando. That's just all the silly stuff I did as a kid, you know? Yeah. No disrespect. I, I mean no disrespect. But, and do you have you a know, link to that work you're involved in, the mental health work? Is there um, I, I'm I'm trying to move now. I've just been signed up by two public speaking companies. So I hope I want to get out there and, and put the word out. But also a lot of people are unhappy now, Sean. It's, um, a lot of people probably got to a stage in their life where they they realize they haven't done all, followed all those dreams through that they thought they would when they were a you know naive kid, right? Mm. And I want to show you how you can set a goal, how you can how you lay it out, how you approach it, how you ignore all the naysayers who are going to tell you, oh, don't do that, go just stay in your work and da 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 da, da you know, and how you follow it through. So when I was at John O'Groat's, Groats. I've got a 1,000-mile run in front of me, ultra marathons every day. I'm thinking one thing. I'm running that last 100 yards to Land's End with my boy. And that's it. That's the only thing, te- as far as the technicality of the run went, that I'm considering. Nothing else. I don't care about injuries. I'm not thinking about hotel. I'm not thinking where am I, pitching my tent tonight. Am I sleeping on the side of the road? I don't care about any of that. I'll face that when it comes, right? I'm running to Land's End. I do it with my boy and. And what did I do? That's exactly what, what I did, right? And I had a lot of detractors telling me, oh, stop, you've got an injury. I broke I broke my leg. My leg snapped, my right leg. And everyone was telling me, go hospital, get a hotel. I'm like, no, I'm a Royal Marines commander. We, that's not like how we do things. And, and, and uh, besides, you know, I'm running to Land's End with my boy. That's just how it is, right? So anyway, this girl's on the floor. And I rush over. I push her off. I try to look in her handbag to find out what drug she's taken. Her friend realizes what I'm doing. She screams and she wrenches the handbag off me. Again, naive young Brit, I'm not realizing drugs are taboo in Hong Kong. Once you've made your fortune, your golden fortune, as they call it, you can take whatever drugs you want. That's fine. If you take drugs before that, you're a loser. It's like, you know, why are you not? making your way in business why are you not saving your money and so this girl would rather her friend died than me be able to find out what drug she's on and tell the ambulance driver right as as we would do here so i look around the club all the chinese had stopped drinking and they're all just staring daggers at me it looked like they wanted to kill me like i've i'm doing something really really wrong I don't know if it's the superstition around around the you know possible dead body, and um, this Westerner came up. He was the only Western guy drinking in the bar at the time, and he, and he smiled. He went, "You're right, bud. I went go to Seven Eleven and call an ambulance. Seven Eleven's the corner shop, right?" He said, "Yeah, right." And he's thinking, oh, well, someone's obviously done that already? This this girl's really ill." I'm saying, "I said, bud, take a look around you." and he, he stole that glance that I had earlier and he went yeah I see what you mean I'm, I'm on it mate don't worry and I saw him sneak out of the club and he just winked at me and in the meantime two sets of legs come over and I look up and it's the Dilo the big brother the gang leader and it, and it's the owner of the club Peter who's a you know much nicer guy and the Dilo just looked down at me and said throw her in the alleyway and I'm like did I just hear what I think he's, he wants me to throw her out with the rubbish. Well, we've got to skip out there, you know. It's a seedy, dirty Hong Kong alleyway. This girl's dying of a drug overdose. She's She needs help. She's she's not long for this world. He wants me to throw her out like, with the rubbish. And again, because I'm not understanding the issue of face, which is respect, which is so big in Asia, or in that part of Asia, and I'm not understanding... The culture that it's far more, you're going to lose face if a girl dies of drugs in your club. It's better she dies outside. You know, it's, it really is that it's, it's, can be quite savage, some of this, this culture, right? So I just looked at, at Peter, the owner, and I said, Peter, she needs an ambulance now, she's going to die. And then I'm putting him on the spot. He's got to now go against the Dilo if he agrees with me, right? And he's like looking around as if to say, uh, uh, and he kind of knows what I'm saying is the right thing, if you know what I mean. He goes, okay, everyone listen to him. He know what he's talking about, right? And I'm like, okay. And uh, I managed to get the assassin to go away. And to, to, I wanted him to get a blanket, anything, right? I tried to get a coat off a Filipino girl. She just burst into tears and ran out of the club, right? She's, again, rather this girl would die than give her a coat that was worth, you know, ten bucks, right? The assassin comes over, Daisu, and go. <clears throat> he just grunts and he throws down all our cleaning rags, right? This is this is. You've got to remember, this girl is worth nothing in the eyes of these guys. She is a bar girl. They are not. They're worth nothing, right? It really is. Life is cheap in that in that way of living. So, finally, the uh, I looked up and the ambulance had come. Peter, the the owner, gone. Okay, everyone, listen to him. The the ambulance came. They took this girl away. I'm thinking. I hope I, you know I've done the right thing for a family back in Bangkok, right? You know, or Chiang Mai, or wherever this poor little darling has come from. And uh, the next morning, the barman come over and said, "Chris, are you, are you going to come to breakfast with a family?" I'm like, "Whoa, this is." You know, okay, in reality, it's probably more the Confucius thing. In Hong Kong culture, the boss must look after the employees. My boss had already given me 5,000 Hong Kong dollars, so 500 quid to furnish my flat. He just gave it to me, right? None of this, you know, sign this, do this. This is ancient culture. It's been done from time immemorial. Paid my money for my flat. In the morning, they want me to go to breakfast with the family, right? so i'm I'm kind of like honored you know and, and we're walking down the street and it's like reservoir dogs you know the the people going to work at, at, at eight o'clock in the morning they're just parting out of our way because this is the fourteen k you know you don't you don't mess with these guys you know it's like a
0: six foot seven assassin
1: yeah six foot seven assassin is hard as nail street fire you've got a, a, bo- a boss with this rather wonky eyes you know so But here was the thing, right? Here was the thing. None of them would speak to me. And it was weird, Sean. It's, hang on, you were all talking to me last night and asking me where I'm from and how big my flat is, which is a a status thing in Hong Kong. You're all keeping away from me now, like I'm a pariah, you know? So I sidled up to the dilo and as always, he just looks dead ahead. And I said, uh, Paul, um, the girl last night, and he just nods. I said, I did the wrong thing, right? And he just nods. And it's like I knew nothing more needed to be said, you know. That, 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 you know, he knew that I'd acknowledged I'd done that. I mean, in hindsight, there were other ways I could have dealt with it, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. I could have picked the girl up, put her over my shoulder, run her out the club, and we could have jumped in a cab, right, and gone to the hospital, or I, you know, any of these things. But I'm, I'm, it just didn't, they just didn't seem. To be an option at the time, right? So we walk into this club, and um, yeah, this is how much I'd fucked up. Is that none of them would, would none of them would let the boss see them speak to me, you know? And uh, it that wasn't even the start <laughs> of things going, Pete Tong, you know? Well, it's time for lunch, Chris. So <laughs> am I boring you, Sean? No, not at oh, all. Oh my god,
0: we. I've just left that on an absolutely brilliant note. I'm sure people are going to be spellbound and they're going to want to hear lots more from you. I'm sure some of them are going to click over to your YouTube channel, link in the description box, and I'm sure some of them are going to want to buy your books. First book is Eating Smoke and second book is... 40 Nights. 40 Nights. The links to those available worldwide in Amazon are also below this video. If you have enjoyed this podcast please let us know what you thought about it in the comments please like and subscribe if you've got any questions for chris if he's kind enough to come back on put your questions for chris in the comments and we'll put some of those forward to him is there anything you would like to say to the people who have watched part one i guess of this video today
1: yeah i look forward to you know i I hope you find this interesting enough this This has just been my life, Sean. You know, I I, I don't put myself anywhere. I'm just a normal guy. This to me has been normal. Hopefully now I can um, shine a light for people who are struggling. I can't do that if I don't get support. It doesn't, you know, it it doesn't work that way. So to that end, thank you very much. And thank you to your viewers. And if people
0: want to... um... Like comment on your socials or contact your socials, you on Twitter, Facebook, all of those. Yeah,
1: all of it. It's all Chris Thrall. So it's facebook.com forward slash Chris Thrall. Website christhrall.com. The only difference is Instagram is chris.thrall. And that's Thrall, T-H-R-A-L-L, not F. Yeah, and I'm available for public speaking. Uh, for the time being, I'd send an email through my website because I'm just hooked up with these companies. And I can talk about Mental health, addiction—the real addiction, not what the government want you to, you know, think it is. Uh, I can talk about my Hong Kong, es- you know, uh, escapade. I can talk about uh, recovery. I can talk about how to run a thousand miles non-stop if that's what you'd like to hear about. It's, you know, it's not it's it's not as challenging as you you probably might think. And uh, yeah, thank you, Sean
0: brilliant let us know what you thought of this podcast cheers chris thanks for coming on cheers thanks so much brother yeah all well. with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky